A Thousand Miles Up the Nile, Section 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 1. Cairo and the Great Pyramid, Part 1. It is the traveller's lot to dine at many table d'hôte in the course of many wanderings, but it seldom befalls him to make one of a more miscellaneous gathering than that which overfills the great dining-room at Shepherd's Hotel in Cairo during the beginning and height of the regular Egyptian season. Here assemble daily some two to three hundred persons of all ranks, nationalities, and pursuits, half of whom are Anglo-Indians, homeward or outward bound, European residents, or visitors established in Cairo for the winter. The other half, if it may be taken for granted, are going up the Nile. So composite and incongruous is this body of Nile-goers, young and old, well-dressed and ill-dressed, learned and unlearned, that the newcomer's first impulse is to inquire from what motives so many persons of dissimilar taste and training can be led to embark upon an expedition which is, to say the least of it, very tedious, very costly, and of an altogether exceptional interest. His curiosity, however, is soon gratified. Before two days are over, he knows everybody's name and everybody's business, distinguishes at first sight between a cook's tourist and an independent traveller, and has discovered that nine-tenths of those whom he is likely to meet up the river are English or American. The rest will be mostly German, with a sprinkling of Belgian and French. So far, en bloc, but the details are more heterogeneous still. Here are invalids in search of health, artists in search of subjects, sportsmen keen upon crocodiles, statesmen out for a holiday, special correspondents alert for gossip, collectors on the scent of papyri and mummies, men of science with only scientific ends in view, and the usual surplus of idlers who travel for the mere love of travel, or the satisfaction of a purposeless curiosity. Now, in a place like Shepherd's, where every fresh arrival has the honor of contributing, for at least a few minutes, to the general entertainment, the first appearance of L. and the writer, tired, dusty, and considerably sunburnt, may well have given rise to some of the comments in usual circulation at those crowded tables. People asked each other most likely where these two wandering Englishwomen had come from, why they had not dressed for dinner, what brought them to Egypt, and if they were also going up the Nile, to which questions it would have been easy to give satisfactory answers. We came from Alexandria, having had a rough passage from Brindisi, followed by forty-eight hours of quarantine. We had not dressed for dinner because, having driven on from the station in advance of dragomen and luggage, we were but just in time to take seats with the rest. We intended, of course, to go up the Nile, and had any one ventured to inquire in so many words what brought us to Egypt, we should have replied, stress of weather. For in simple truth we had drifted hither by accident, with no excuse of health or business or any serious object whatever, and had just taken refuge in Egypt as one might turn aside into the Burlington Arcade, or the Passage des Panoramas, to get out of the rain, and with good reason, having left home early in September for a few weeks sketching in central France, we had been pursued by the wettest of wet weather. Washed out of the hill country, we fared no better in the plains. At Nîmes it poured for a month without stopping. Debating at last whether it were better to take our wet umbrellas back at once to England, or push on further still in search of sunshine, 
The talk fell upon Algiers, Malta, Cairo, and Cairo carried it. Never was distant expedition entered upon with less premeditation. The thing was no sooner decided than we were gone. Nice, Genoa, Bologna, and Kona flitted by as in a dream, and Bedreddin Hassan, when he awoke at the gates of Damascus, was scarcely more surprised than the writer of these pages, when she found herself on board the Simla, and steaming out of the port of Brindisi. Here, then, without definite plans, outfit, or any kind of oriental experience, behold us arrived in Cairo the twenty-ninth of November, 1873, literally and most prosaically in search of fine weather. But what had memory to do with rains on land, or storms at sea, or the impatient hours of quarantine, or anything dismal or disagreeable, when one awoke at sunrise to see those grey-green palms outside the window, solemnly bowing their plumed heads towards each other, against a rose-coloured dawn? It was dark last night, and I had no idea that my room overlooked an enchanted garden, far-reaching and solitary, peopled with stately giants beneath whose tufted crowns hung rich clusters of maroon and amber dates. It was a still, warm morning. Grave, grey-and-black crows flew heavenly from tree to tree, or perched, cawing meditatively upon the topmost branches. Yonder, between the pillared stems, rose the minaret of a very distant mosque, and here, where the garden was bounded by a high wall and a windowless house, I saw a veiled lady walking on the terraced roof in the midst of a cloud of pigeons. Nothing could be more simple than the scene and its accessories, nothing at the same time more eastern, strange, and unreal. But in order thoroughly to enjoy an overwhelming, ineffaceable first impression of oriental out-of-doors life, one should begin in Cairo with a day in the native bazaars, neither buying, nor sketching, nor seeking information but just taking in scene after scene with its manifold combinations of light and shade, color, costume, and architectural detail. Every shop-front, every street-corner, every turbaned group is a ready-made picture. The old Turk who sets up his cake-stall in the recess of a sculptured doorway, the donkey-boy with his gaily caparisoned ass waiting for customers, the beggar asleep on the steps of the mosque, the veiled woman filling her water-jar at the public fountain. They all look as if they had been put there expressly to be painted. Nor is the background less picturesque than the figures. The houses are high and narrow. The upper stories project, and from these again jut windows of delicate turned latticework in old brown wood, like big bird cages. The street is roofed in overhead with long rafters and pieces of matting, through which a dusty sunbeam struggles here and there casting patches of light upon the moving crowd. The unpaved thoroughfare, a mere lane, full of ruts and watered profusely twice or thrice a day, is lined with little wooden shop-fronts, like open cabinets full of shelves, where the merchants sit cross-legged in the midst of their goods, looking out at the passers-by and smoking in silence. Meanwhile the crowd ebbs and flows unceasingly. A noisy, changing, restless, party-colored tide, half European, half Oriental, on foot, on horseback, and in carriages. Here are Syrian dragomans in baggy trousers and braided jackets, barefoot Egyptian fellahin in ragged blue shirts and felt skull-caps, Greeks in absurdly stiff white tunics, like walking pen-wipers, Persians with high meter-like caps of dark-woven stuff, swarthy Bedouins in flowing garments, 
creamy white with chocolate stripes a foot wide, and head-shawl of the same bound about the brow with a fillet of twisted camel's hair. Englishmen in palm-leafed hats and knickerbockers dangling their long legs across almost invisible donkeys. Native women of the poorer class, in black veils that leave only the eyes uncovered, and long trailing garments of dark blue and black striped cotton. Dervishes in patchwork coats, their matted hair streaming from under fantastic headdresses. Blue-black Abyssinians with incredibly slender, bowed legs like attenuated ebony balustrades. Armenian priests, looking exactly like Portia as the doctor, in long black gowns and high square caps, majestic ghosts of Algerine Arabs all in white, mounted janissaries with jingling sabres and gold-embroidered jackets, merchants, beggars, soldiers, boatmen, laborers, workmen, in every variety of costume and of every shade of complexion from fair to dark, from tawny to copper color, from deepest bronze to bluest black. Now a water-carrier goes by, bending under the weight of his newly replenished goatskin, the legs of which being tied up, the neck fitted with a brass cock, and the hair left on, looks horribly bloated and lifelike. Now comes a sweetmeat vendor with a tray of that gummy compound known to English children as lumps of delight, and now an Egyptian lady on a large gray donkey led by a servant with a showy saber at his side. The lady wears a rose-colored silk dress and white veil, besides a black silk outer garment, which, being cloak, hood, and veil all in one, fills out with the wind as she rides like a balloon. She sits astride, her naked feet in their violet velvet slippers just resting on the stirrups. She takes care to display a plump brown arm laden with massive gold bracelets, and to judge by the way in which she uses a pair of liquid black eyes, would not be sorry to let her face be seen also. Nor is the steed less well-dressed than his mistress. His close-shaven legs and hindquarters are painted in blue and white zigzag, picked out with bands of pale yellow. His high-pommeled saddle is resplendent with velvet and embroidery and his headgear is all tags, tassels, and fringes. Such a donkey as this is worth from sixty to a hundred pounds sterling. Next passes an open barouche full of laughing Englishwomen, or a grave provincial sheikh all in black riding a handsome bay Arab, demisang, or an Egyptian gentleman in European dress and Turkish fez, driven by an English groom in an English phaeton. Before him, wand in hand, bare-legged, eager-eyed, in Greek skull-cap, and gorgeous gold-embroidered waistcoat and fluttering white tunic, flies a native sais, or running footman. No person of position drives in Cairo without one or two of these attendants. The sais, strong, light, and beautiful, like John of Bologna's Mercury, are said to die young. The pace kills them. Next passes a lemonade-seller, with his tin jar in one hand, and his decanter and brass cups in the other, or an itinerant slipper-vendor with a bunch of red and yellow Morocco shoes dangling at the end of a long pole, or a London-built miniature brougham containing two ladies in transparent Turkish veils, preceded by a Nubian outrider in semi-military livery, or perhaps a train of camels, ill-tempered and supercilious, craning their scrannel necks above the crowd, and laden with canvas bales scrawled over with Arabic addresses. End of section 1